grateful for those who have so served us here to remind us of the words that we find in Scripture, the truth that we find in the text before us today, indeed, as we come to John chapter 19. Let's bow for prayer just briefly and ask for wisdom. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word, that the Spirit of God would move among us to teach us your truth and to draw us into the light for many of us what we know and may the roots of our knowledge and our faith be watered today by your word. For those who come without Christ as Savior and Lord, I pray that you draw them to yourself to trust you and to know you. And Lord, we are grateful for this opportunity and we pray that you would be glorified in it. Through Christ we pray. Amen. By mid-June of 1815, war had ravaged Europe for 23 years. The future of the British Empire now hinged on the decisive battle at Waterloo in Belgium. If French General Napoleon wins the battle, British citizens will lose their freedom and they will come under the dictatorial rule of a foreign leader. Imagine their spot. But if British General Wellington and his coalition forces win at Waterloo, Britain will remain free from tyranny. So the fate of the British Isles hung in the balance. Once the battle was decided, news was carried by ship from the continent to the southern coast of England. And then in that day, so very different from ours, it was signal lamps that would, usually using Morse code, would communicate the message from one tower to the next across the land. And eventually, those flashes of light reached the tower of the cathedral at Winchester. Crowds gathered below on that foggy day, and they were straining to read the battle's verdict, but the message flashing before their eyes crushed their hearts. What they saw was Wellington defeated. Dejected crowds turned in disbelief toward their homes as the woeful news continued to spread from person to person down the streets and lanes of Winchester. Their hopes and their dreams were dead. The sorrow of a soul, if we can imagine, that blanketed Winchester that foggy June day pales in comparison with the devastating sorrow that filled the hearts of Jesus' followers on the day of his crucifixion. Among others, there was Mary. Mary from the town of Magdala on the western shore of the Lake Galilee, well to the north. She had traveled all the way from Galilee with Jesus to Jerusalem serving Him, providing food, working to make this journey of His team possible. And Mary watched Jesus die. The author of this Gospel, John, was also there. He watched a Roman soldier take a spear and drive it into the side of his Savior. Not a flinch. The blood and water that flowed out, John watched and said, Jesus defeated. 
What remained now was the task of burying his body. The Romans typically would just leave it on the cross, let the birds take care of it. Why should we bother ourselves taking down trash and burying it? But the Jews, in contrast, refused burial to no one. But they did refuse to bury a crucified man in his family grave, had Jesus even had one there in Jerusalem, or in a proper cemetery. The Jews threw crucified men into a common grave reserved for criminals, pitching their bodies on the heap like so much trash. But the followers of Jesus, utterly powerless to do anything. They could not rescue him from the cross. They could not rescue him from such a dishonorable burial. But we learn in John chapter 19, beginning at verse 38, that God providentially intervened. Jesus is buried in a new tomb against all expectation. Verse 38 of John 19, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Joseph was a wealthy member of Israel's highest ruling body, the Sanhedrin. He was also a secretive follower of Jesus, intimidated by his powerful peers. But whatever fears squelched his public confession of Christ, He was certainly overcoming those fears now. There's probably nothing he could have done more dangerous than to identify with a crucified man, to take his body and to give it burial. The fact that Pilate granted the request is certainly evidence that he knew Jesus was innocent of all charges, and he probably wanted one last opportunity to irritate the Jewish leaders who had put him in this spot in his thinking where he had to kill Jesus. So he grants to this wealthy, influential man the body of a crucified man. It's unprecedented. Well, Joseph did not work alone, verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds of weight, Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin, we learn elsewhere. You remember in chapter 3 of John, he comes to Jesus by night. And remember that, that it is at night. John, I don't think, ever uses the word night meaninglessly or just flippantly. There's always a theme, there's a point that's there, there's a point that he's making. This one had come to him by night and now has become a follower not standing up very well because he was not limited by his connection to the Sanhedrin. But while Joseph took possession of Jesus' body, Nicodemus used his considerable wealth to bring together this large amount of spices fitting for the burial of a king. Verse 40, so they took the body. They took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths and spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. The spices made from plants and trees and would be turned into a resin and an oil and would be just filtered into the folds of these long linen wraps made out of the flax seed. These linen wraps would have 
encase the body. The Jews did not embalm. They always buried within 24 hours. And so these linen wraps were important to keep the body intact as it decayed. And I'm only talking here today about the burial of the wealthy. But with the wealthy, that kept that intact until the body decayed and was placed elsewhere within the crypt. The spices serving to counteract the smell of decaying flesh until those bones were placed in often an ossuary, a stone box somewhere else in the tomb. Verse 41, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. That's not a vegetable garden, but a flowers and bushes and perhaps trees. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Might have been all that they thought about was just the fact that it's close The day of preparation, that's the day you get all your work done for the next day, which is the Sabbath on which the Jews, by law, had to rest. And they were very scrupulous about what they did not do on the Sabbath, and so you made all your preparations before. The sun is beginning to set, which would be the start of the Sabbath, and so they have to move very quickly to get Jesus' body into this tomb. It's right there near Golgotha, where he is crucified And so they're able to move his body there rather quickly. It's significant that no other body is in this tomb. These tombs could be elaborate, multi-level, multi-roomed spaces. You see on this graphic, just being carved out underneath the earth, sometimes underneath, sometimes into a face of rock, and, and multiple generations of families would be interred there. Uh, this being a, a current day uh, archaeological discovery laid on that slab that's straight ahead of you in this graphic and then these ossuaries, these boxes where the bones would be placed and left there for as long as possible. But this tomb, by contrast, was empty. In the proximity of this tomb, providentially permitting Joseph and Nicodemus to bring together their considerable wealth and probably also a number of servants to help them in the preparation of Jesus' body with great dignity in a very short period of time. Now again, thinking back to John's theme of darkness and light, That light illustrating spiritual life is probably significant that Nicodemus, who first came to him at night in chapter 3, is now working to beat the night as he lays Jesus to rest. The approaching darkness, however, is not stopped by the light glow in the midst of deep sorrow for the Savior There is a brighter light that is beginning to dawn in his heart. And there is undoubtedly now, as he is putting Jesus' body to rest, a love for Christ that has overcome his fears. We can only begin to imagine the heartache these men suffered as they wrapped the body of Jesus, the rabbi they failed to follow openly until now. Perhaps they spoke in low term, low tones. Why? Why did we not serve him while he was alive? Why did we so fear man? Why did we not confess him boldly? 
There was something in their hearts that had moved them past all of the fear of what people think and to put their wealth and their influence toward the honor of this teacher who now strangely they desperately missed. Jesus dies on a Friday And between chapters 19 and 20, the Jewish people rested on the Sabbath would have certainly given Jesus' followers time to grieve in a unique way and to contemplate what they had lost and where they had gone wrong. How it was possible that all they could see today was Jesus defeated. But one of those followers was Mary, a woman of unusual devotion to Christ. She stands out that way in the text of Scripture and you've got to love her for it. Now, chapter 20 and verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Before meeting Jesus, Mary had suffered under the oppression, the oppressive influence of seven demons. We don't really know what that means, if it was seven seasons of illness or some type of depression, how they would know that there were seven demons. We're not told how that was possible. But one thing we can say is that when before before Mary met Jesus, she was a mess. Her life was a mess. But she met Jesus one day. He ministered not far from Magdala where she lived. He on the kind of northwestern corner of the lake, she and a little bit more of the western corner of the lake, they were, lived fairly close together, and she one day met him, and Jesus delivered her from her torments. And from that day forward, Mary of Magdala became Christ's devoted follower. Mary was one of the handful of women who traveled with Jesus, as I mentioned, from the region of Galilee down to Jerusalem, supporting him. In the end, however, it turned out to be for her a very bitter mission as she watched her Messiah die by torture. Entering Jerusalem several days earlier with Jesus' disciples, she thought he would be crowned king. She really did. But Mary, the only message in her mind now that flashed time and time again was Jesus defeated. He was gone. His mission was over, death had won, and Mary's heart was crushed. With Jesus to the bitter end, she was the first to visit his tomb this morning to pay him homage, even before dawn, perhaps the light just beginning to shine enough for her to make her way to the tomb, but she's shocked by what she finds. That massive, carved, wheel-shaped stone rolled along a trench in front of the doorway to seal the tomb had been rolled back. She knew that it had been rolled back because she had seen it rolled in place and she saw it sealed with the authority of the Romans. So however that stone was moved, it was moved with some authority in some sense. She concludes the only thing she can see is that it was tampered with in some way. So she does what naturally comes to mind, verse 2, and she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, that's John, the author of the book, And the one whom Jesus loved. And she said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. The they is very ambiguous. It could be a lot of different people that would not have wanted Jesus to be interred there. 
Maybe the Jews were angered by the honorable burial. Maybe the Romans, maybe Pilate had changed his mind and was under some pressure. And so he had the body moved. It may just be that the caretaker moved it, but she didn't know. Maybe Joseph Nicodemus, maybe this was just a temporary place of burial because it was so close at hand on the preparation. She didn't know. They've moved it. And she says, we couldn't, we don't know where they've laid him. We, there were other women with her. They're just not referred to here in the text. But verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Why did John outrun Peter? Well, Maybe it's because Peter, as they were running, said, whoever reaches a tomb last is a rotten egg. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, John, probably just younger and probably healthier. And to be serious, this was not a fun run. This was probably one of the most intense runs ever. And I imagine that Peter, on his part, had a very heavy heart that day, having betrayed his Savior. But it's a, it's a detail that indicates a true eyewitness account. John got there first. And what he does there also indicates an eyewitness account. Verse 5, And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. This isn't the tomb, but it just gives an idea of, the, of what might have been. You see kind of the, the shadow of the stone there over the doorway. That's been rolled back, and where the body would have been laid, he sees these linen cloths. They're, they're not folded up. They're not balled up. They're just laying there where they were, but there's no body inside. They were apparently stiff with blood and with the spices, the uh, gum of the spices, marking the place, perhaps even the contours of Jesus' body, which was no longer there. And John, again, this eyewitness account, he hesitates at the doorway. A fine detail that evidences eyewitness work. Verse 6, Then Simon Peter came, so John's there looking in. Simon Peter comes following him and went into the tomb. He just barrels right in. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloth but folded up in a place by itself. I mean, this is, as a, as a fairy tale, this is utterly no reason for that detail. But this is an eyewitness account of what they found inside the tomb including this cloth that would have gone at, at the end over the face it was elsewhere and it was folded. Then at this point, verse 8, the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and he believed. As light and darkness are a theme that runs throughout John, so belief and unbelief are a theme. And I don't believe for a moment here that what it means is that John believed Mary's report. He clearly believed Mary's report at this point, but he believed in the sense of putting his trust in Christ in a unique way. As John enters the doorway of Jesus' tomb, he enters the doorway of trusting in Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead. 
an interpretation that's, in, that's supported by verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the Scriptures that He must rise from the dead. He did not come to the tomb saying, I hope the Scriptures are fulfilled. I hope the Scriptures are fulfilled. I hope I find it empty, just like the Scriptures say. No, He just came and looked. All that John knew, all that Peter knew, all that Mary and all the disciples knew was Jesus defeated. But something happens as John enters into this crypt and he can only call it belief. There is a trusting faith in Christ. And as verse 9, in light of verse 9, friend, if you do not realize that Jesus had to rise from the dead, that his resurrection was prophesied and utterly necessary to fulfill God's plan of salvation, then you do not understand the Bible as you must. John says, I didn't get it. I didn't see what God had written, how he had prepared his people for this very event, but I believed. Seeing, I believed. And it pointed me back to the Scriptures eventually. Without the resurrection of Jesus... What Scriptures teaches is that you have utterly no hope of standing before God in eternity forgiven of sin. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is forgiveness and is eternal life. And that gift comes only through Jesus' death to pay the penalty of that sin and His resurrection that announced God's approval of Christ's sacrifice in the place of sinners. That said, John believed personally what had previously been declared in Scripture and what Jesus had fulfilled. He had come to trust that message in some unique way. He was trusting in Jesus all along, but this is new. This is essential. Jesus died and he rose from the dead. In that he places his faith and goes home. Verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes. They go back to their families. A slowly dawning faith building in them that Christ has indeed risen. Undoubtedly their minds as Jesus had taught them and as they had indeed learned from youth began to review the scriptures And think of what God had said and how these things could possibly be. The message Jesus defeated continues to flash, however, before Mary's mind. She's not where they are. She keeps finding herself in a different spot. She's at the tomb. They're at home. She runs and gets them. They're at home. They go to the tomb. She's well behind. And now she comes and they're already left and gone back home. And this is where we find this beautiful account of Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene. Verse 11, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And she wept. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Again, she knew it had been sealed. It was quite clear to her without seeing that Jesus' body was gone. Only way you can open a sealed tomb with Rome's authority. She didn't need to look in, but she didn't know what else to do at this point. And she looks in and she can do nothing but weep. Jesus is dead, and if anything could possibly go worse than that, it's that his body can't be found. 
So she stands at the tomb weeping, stoops in, and she saw, verse 12, two angels in white sitting there, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. That is, the strips of linen cloth indicated where Jesus' head and feet had been positioned. Whether coincidental or not, the angel seated on the niche where Christ's body had been laid channel, in a sense, the Ark of the Covenant. Some have noted this as kind of a, that box on which that's carved out of stone on which his body was laid with an angel on either side. Whether intentional or not, it certainly reflects that tabernacle setting. But Mary ducks through the small entrance and into the front room of this chisel-out tomb. And in verse 13, they say these angels to her, and I, by the way, time out, I think she is probably so overcome with grief, she's not even startled. There's some who see angels that are utterly startled. There's others like her. I, I think she was just so taken with her grief. You've maybe been there where the grief is so deep and so hard that nothing phases you. These angels talk to her, and rather than causing her a heart attack, she just talks with them. Woman, why are you weeping? That woman, that she's, they were definitely Southerners. Because that just woman just doesn't, it sounds disrespectful. This is like saying, ma'am. Ma'am, why are you weeping? She stands there conversing with these angels. And they ask her, what is the cause of her great grief? She answers in verse 13, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. So she's inside the tomb talking to them, and behind her become, there's a presence. Again, she's in deep grief as she's talking with them. Doesn't know that it's Jesus. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, again, something like, Ma'am, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? That's a strange question. Who are you looking for? If you were standing in a cemetery crying and someone walked up behind you and said, who did you lose? That would make perfect sense. If you were weeping at a graveside somewhere and they said, for whom are you grieving? That would make sense. But Jesus says, who are you looking for? He understands better what she's doing than she does. She hasn't lost someone, the person she's looking for. The person she's trying to find is the living, breathing man standing before her. Mary answers this man who she doesn't know, supposing him Verse 15 in the middle, supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. That's grief speaking. She, how on earth was she probably outweighed? Uh, how is she going to carry someone heavier than she? Where on earth is she going to put the body? None of that matters. She's not talking logistics here. She's talking devotion. Just tell me where he is and I'll take care of him. I think she'd move heaven and earth. 
to give Jesus the best burial that she could think of. Now dead, now defeated, but still loved deeply. You have never met a sinless person. She had. And the loss was absolutely overwhelming. The beauty of his life. Tell me where you've put him. I'll take care of him. Perhaps at this point it would seem then that she turns back to focus on the empty grave, maybe wanting again to converse with the angels, but then she hears something she thought she'd never hear again in this waking world. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. That's all it took. Mary. She turned and said to him, in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. He addressed her as he always had, and she immediately recognizes his voice, then she addresses him as she always had. He was her teacher. He was the one who taught her the words of life. She said, it's you. This term of respectful endearment and devotion, it is my teacher. And we ask, why this beautiful moment, this such a private moment for the first person to see the risen Christ. We cannot know for certain, but we can be certain Jesus did nothing by accident. Nothing. Perhaps he appeared first to Mary because she just flat out deserved it. She was the last one at the cross and the first one at the tomb. Maybe he didn't stop to talk to John because the faith was still building and Peter had a whole bag load of issues to deal with it might have just knocked him over of a heart attack I don't know why but I do wonder perhaps it's because the testimony think of everything in the Christian faith that hinges on testimony of eyewitnesses and the testimony of one woman in court in that day was useless I wonder If he did not appear to her, because Jesus chooses the weak, the despised, to confound the strong and the influential. He could have appeared to Joseph and Nicodemus and sent them back to the Sanhedrin with that message. But he appears to one devout woman. Reminds us of another Mary who was the servant of the Lord and the mother of Christ. Well, verse 17, a strange exchange now takes place and obviously she has responded in great devotion and worship for Jesus says to her in verse 17, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God, and your God. The most natural thing for any of us to conclude would be that in his resurrection, he would immediately ascend to the Father. He had taken on flesh. He had died in the place of sinners. He's risen from the dead. The next thing on the agenda is to ascend. 
But he says, go tell, your, tell my brothers, that is, tell the disciples that I'm alive. But I've not yet ascended to the Father. So I don't think there's some strange thing going on here that you can't touch somebody who hasn't ascended yet or something like that because very soon after he's going to talk to Thomas and say, touch me. So the point is, don't cling to my feet here. Right now, we don't have the time for this. I am soon to ascend to my Father and I've got things to teach the brothers. So go tell them. Go back to them. Now, just a, a quick sideline here, because some take this first. If there's any evidence that Jesus is not God, is this not clear to you, Christians? I'm going to send to my God and your God, my Father and your Father. There it is. He's, he's clearly saying he's not God, but he has a God. Well, there's two, just two answers here briefly. First of all, those who use this verse to make the argument that Jesus is not God make a false assumption. They assume that Jesus applies Father and God to himself in the same way that he's applying it to the disciples. That's an assumption that's just wrong. Let me illustrate how that might work very simply. Let's say that I have a biological sister who is a member of this church. And I say to one of you, who's not related to me in any way other than in Adam, I say, could you please take this book to our sister? Well, sister means something to me, her biological sister, her brother, get this right, <laughs> and it means something different to the one who is a sister in Christ. We're using the word sister in a different way because of how we relate to that person. And I think the same thing is taking place here. What we must remember is when we assume that it's exactly the same, we forget that Jesus has two natures. There's a divine nature and a human nature. And so he can always speak of his God. That does not mean that he is not God. So the words are used in a different sense. Secondly, the answer is found right here in this chapter. If there's any question of whether Jesus is God, we find it at the end of the chapter. Go to verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, so I'm in John 20, 27, he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. He's not using God's name in vain there. He's talking to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus, does he rebuke him? Oh, no, 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 we, we both have the same God. I'm not, I'm not divine. Does he rebuke him? No, he encourages him. Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What is he believing? That Jesus is God. That he is the Son of God. That he is divine. Now, we could go a lot longer and say much more, but suffice it to say, this is not an evidence that Jesus is a created being, a human being only, uh, who has God as his Father, like we have God as our Father. There is a distinction because of his two natures, and verse 28 makes that very clear, that he is indeed God. 
What a joy, however, to get back to the point it was for Mary Magdalene to take this message. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Mary last at the cross, first at the tomb. She was highly favored. I imagine whether she ran or made her way very quickly that her lungs fairly burst on the way with this news. To come before the disciples and be trusted by her Savior as the single voice to first announce, I have seen the Lord. The once weeping Mary now bursts forth with the happiest announcement of her life. It's not Jesus defeated. It's Jesus defeated the enemy. He lives. I have seen him. Death had clouded her vision of the ultimate victory, but she saw it all clearly now. When Jesus delivered her of demonic oppression, she would never be the same again. Now, she would never be the same again. Jesus defeated had been overturned. Let's come back to where we started. When the people craning their necks heavenward to read the message flashed from the tower of Winchester's cathedral and they read, Wellington defeated, they went home defeated. What they did not recognize is that the rolling fog on that June day had shrouded the full message. The full message was, and once that fog cleared and they saw the lamps from the tower, that full message was, Wellington defeated the enemy. And their sorrow turned to celebration. That's Mary here. Suddenly, Jesus defeated has become Jesus defeated the enemy. That's the full message. She did not have it till now. And in keeping with Old Testament prophecies and fulfillment of the explicit teaching of Jesus, his prophecies concerning his resurrection, and the fact that Scripture had from Genesis chapter 3 set out the task of crushing the serpent's head. Jesus had won now the ultimate victory. His life as the Lamb of God, as sacrificed in the place of sinners to satisfy God's just anger against us. Jesus drained the penalty of eternal judgment in hell, which every sinner deserves. And He satisfied that just demand for all who trust Him as Lord and Savior. Once the fog of sorrow had cleared, Mary saw the entire message. Jesus defeated the enemy. Jesus defeated sin. Jesus defeated death. What a vicious, vicious enemy death is. But what victory there is in our Savior's resurrection. For those who do not know Christ in a personal way, I would implore you, encourage you to the depths of my heart to put your faith and your trust in this good news. This is not something you achieve on your own. It's not something that we're calling you to gain by good works. This is a piece of news from a battlefield. It's something that God has done. And that message changes everything. In a small way, it changed the people of Winchester from a defeated people to a celebrating people. 
Wellington had not been defeated. He had defeated the enemy. And so it is here. We come to a a piece of news about what someone else did, about the Lamb of God who stood in our place and bore the penalty of our sin. And the call then is to come to belief, to come to faith in what He has done. Just rejoicing in that yesterday as I thought through these things, how glad I am that I don't stand before God in my strength, in my merits, in my goodness. I stand in His. It's news that has come to me and I've received it. I put my faith and my trust in it. For those of us who have done so, first of all, our faith rests, let's remind ourselves, in the historical reality of Christ's bodily resurrection. I can tell you I did not walk these steps, which are really hard to get to, but I did not get up here today to stand here and tell you something new. You know what I'm talking about. This is truth we've embraced as God's people. I'm just feeding the roots and the solid foundation on which we stand every day of our lives. He is risen. He has defeated death. We have life in His name. So let us simply soak our minds in that reality. Let us not forget that we do not follow myths We follow news, news of the historical reality that Jesus defeated death, that he lives today and reigns. Secondly, our mission is essentially the same now as Mary's, in a sense, to testify to the risen Savior. So may we, in light of her devotion and this account, resolve by God's grace and the Spirit's power, not to cower in fear of our world as Joseph did, Not to regret how we do not stand up for Christ, but to speak, to proclaim with joy and confidence as Mary had, I have seen the Lord. He is risen. For us in a metaphorical sense, someday in the ultimate sense, we will stand before the Lord and say, I have seen the Lord. He lives. And we will live with Him for eternity as we place our faith and our hope in His saving grace. I bear witness to the forgiving grace of the Savior who has defeated death, the ultimate enemy of everybody out there. Let's take the news. May our lungs burst, nearly burst with the truth, and may our tongues proclaim this truth, that He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the reminder of Your Word. We're grateful for its lines, its words, its paragraphs, and as they connect to the rest of Scripture, how this book holds together over centuries of time, we praise you for the revelation that you have given us. We praise you for our Savior, who in your eternal counsels as the Son, the eternal Son, came to take on flesh and to pay the penalty of our sin, dying the human death that we as holy human beings deserve. We praise you, Father, for the resurrection power. We praise you for the life that we have in his name, and we pray now that we may sing for joy to the Lord, exulting in your presence this day, and saying together as a church and as your people, we have seen the Lord. He is risen indeed. 
This is all a gift. We pray that some would embrace that gift. For those that have, Lord, we receive it with thanksgiving and joy. May we sing all of our days to the glory of your name. Through Christ we pray. Amen.